The Bible reading today is from Exodus chapter 33:18 to 34:8. It is on page 72 of the Pew Bibles. Then Moses said, "Now show me your glory." And the Lord said, "I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence." I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, and he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the gentiles parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're uh, wrapping up our Reformation series today. Let me pray for us as we uh, get into it. Uh, Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have saved us by your grace uh, through faith in Christ to your glory. We pray that as we uh, come to the end of our series on the Reformation, Uh, May we take hold of the gospel that you have given to us uh, through your word, passed down from generation to generation, that we might seek to live lives that glorify you and you alone in all that we do and say. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine uh, you're a common man or woman living in Christendom in the late 1400s. Uh, Maybe you're country folk working the farm to make ends meet, or you're city folk working as a blacksmith to make ends meet. So like most people, you're uneducated and illiterate. And so you probably think that the earth is flat. Uh, So if you sail for long enough and go far enough, uh, you literally fall off uh, the uh, edge of the earth. Uh, You also believe, as most people do, uh, that the earth is the center of the universe, as the church taught you. Uh, The earth stands still and the sun and the uh, planets all revolve around the earth, just like the moon. And like most people around you, you're someone who fears God. Uh, Your impression of Jesus isn't the humble servant, but the terrifying judge of your sins. And so you look to Rome as your mother and to the Pope as your father. They're your irreplaceable parents. Without Father Pope, there's no church. Uh, And without Mother Church in Rome, there's no salvation. For the church at that time was teaching you that salvation is not received by grace alone. Through faith alone, you need to be a good person and earn your place in heaven. Salvation is not revealed by scripture alone. It can only be interpreted by the Pope and supplemented by the traditions of the church. 
And you don't have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ alone. For the Roman Catholic Church was telling you to go to the local priest to intercede for you and mediate for you. But now let's fast forward a couple hundred years. We're now in the middle of the 1600s. You've lived a good and long life and you've witnessed a great many things. Christopher Columbus has sailed across the Atlantic Sea and he doesn't fall off the edge of the sea, of the earth. Instead, he discovers America. The earth is round, not flat. Copernicus publishes some books and some of your learned friends tell you that the earth isn't at the center of the universe after all. The church has been wrong. The earth revolves around the sun instead. Your mind is spinning out of control. It's been turned upside, turned upside down. Your understanding of science in geography, astronomy, and the four seasons have completely changed. But more radical change is your understanding of the gospel. You now know that salvation is received by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Jesus alone, as revealed in scripture alone. So you no longer fear Jesus as your judge because you look to the cross of Christ and see his love poured out for you. No longer do you wonder if you're good enough for God because you look at the cross of Christ and know that he has been good enough for you. No longer do you fear purgatory and buy indulgences because you look to the cross of Christ where all your sins have been nailed. And so what do you do? How do you respond? Well, there's nothing left to do but to glorify God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. As we now come to the end of our series on the five solas of the Reformation, it's appropriate to end on the high note. The high note that all glory belongs to God. You see, each solar is important. There's no doubt about that. But the first four solas really exist to preserve this last solar. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. The goal of the first four solas is to see that this one is met. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. You see, the Bible tells us that everything God does and everything God continues to do is to glorify himself. He glorifies himself in his creation. He also glorifies himself when he judges and when he saves. So let's have a brief look at each one of these. How God glorifies himself in the act of creating, in the act of judging, and in the act of saving. The first is the act of creating. Creation glorifies God, for that's what creation was meant to do. You see, we were created to glorify God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43 from verse 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That is all people. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what purpose? For my glory, God says, whom I found and made. In fact, we were created to reflect God's glory. We were to do this by ruling over God's creation as he rules over us. So Psalm chapter 8 from 5 to 6. You have made them a little, that is people, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. We've been created with glory. And we're to reflect God's glory. How? Verse 6. You made them rulers just as God rules over us, so we are to rule the world under him. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. 
In fact, all creation is created to glorify God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. But as we've seen over the past few weeks, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Rather than glorify God, we've suppressed the truth and worship created things rather than the creator. Rather than honour him, we've dishonoured him. Rather than behold his holiness, we've sinned in his face. But thankfully, our sin doesn't stop God from being glorified. For God is now glorified when he judges and when he saves. We see God's act of judgment glorifies him in Romans chapter 9. In the passage, Paul's talking about God's freedom to choose to save some and not to save others. But this might, not, uh, might, might surprise you. Because often we think, why, why doesn't God save everyone? Wouldn't that be the best thing? Wouldn't that glorify him the most? But no, actually, the Bible says to us that God is glorified when he saves some and when he judges others. God is glorified when he saves and when he judges. You see, when God doesn't save some and judges others for their sin and rebellion, it displays his character his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, that those who sin against him deserve his wrath. Uh, Paul uses Pharaoh as an example. You might remember the story of Exodus. Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. Uh, so God raised up Moses uh, and sent him to bring his people out from captivity, from slavery, to free them so that they might go and worship God. And what happens? Well, Pharaoh hardens his heart. That's why the plagues had to be escalated over and over, the ten mighty acts of God's judgment. Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. But what do we also read in the Exodus account? Here in Romans chapter 9, that God actually also hardens Pharaoh's heart. And why did God do this? He did this to display his power that God will judge rebellion and sin, that God will save his people. So Romans chapter 9, verse 17 says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up. So why was Pharaoh born? Why was he raised up to become the king of the Egyptians, the ruler of the greatest empire of that time? Well, the Bible tells us. God raised him up. I raised you up, God says, for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was created to demonstrate God's power, his power to judge wickedness and rebellion. And the audience for his glory is the entire world, but especially those he saves. Because You'll never know how good it is to be saved unless you know what you're being saved from. You don't know how good God's mercy is unless you know how terrifying his judgment is. And so Paul goes on in verse 23, he did this, God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. That is, we know how much more glorious God is because we know how terrifying his judgment is. We know how holy he is and how sinful we are. We have seen a glimpse of his wrath. For to see God's glory is to see his holiness. And to know God's glory is to know his character. And so later in Exodus chapter 33 verse 18, 
the passage Maddie had read out for us. Moses asked God, after God has saved Israel from slavery, after God has punished Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their wickedness, Moses asked to see God's glory and God to proclaim his name. So verse uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with them and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving weakness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You see, to see God's glory, if you want to see God's glory, if you want to know what God's glory looks like, then it is to see his holiness. To know God's glory is to know his character, that he is merciful and just, that he extends grace but he'll also judge the wicked. For in judging, God glorifies himself and displays his holiness for all of us to see. But just as God's act of judging glorifies him, his act of salvation also glorifies him. Ultimately, we see God's glory in Jesus, the Son of God. So Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us the God, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, God's fullest expression of his glory is found in his Son. God's divine glory finds its ultimate expression in Jesus. So if Moses asks Jesus, show me your glory, show me God's glory, what would Jesus say to him? Stand on this rock and I'll pass by? No, Jesus wouldn't say that. He would say to Moses, look at me. You see in me the glory of God, the fullness of the glory of God. Well, what does it mean? That is, you see my holiness. You, you see my character. To see the character and the holiness and the perfection of Jesus is to see the glory of God. And on the cross we see the glory of God in all its wonder, for on the cross we see the wrath of God and the mercy of God meet. Where God judges sin and pays for sin, and God's love and compassion flows to us. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to God. It costs him dearly and we receive it freely. That's why salvation glorifies God. It reveals his holiness and character, for it shows not that he is only just, but that he's merciful and gracious. It's only when we contribute nothing to our salvation that all glory will go to God. That's why Paul breaks out in doxology in Romans, in praise to God at the end of Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Friends, salvation is from God. Salvation comes from God, and salvation is for God's glory alone. The Bible makes it very clear that all glory belongs to God alone, because he alone 
saves and makes salvation possible for you and me. But as we've seen over this series of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church begs to differ. They say that salvation doesn't belong to God alone, it belongs to the church as well. For the Roman church dispenses grace as long as you do penance. And the Roman priest intercedes for God's people, offering Christ as a sacrifice to God at every Mass. What the Roman Catholic Church officially teaches strips God of his glory and shouts in his face that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't sufficient. To say that we need the Pope and church tradition to know God is to shout in the face of God that he isn't a very clear communicator. He needs an interpreter. To say that we need a human priest is to shout in the face of God that Jesus is failing as our heavenly high priest. He's not doing his job very well. To say that we need to offer Jesus as a sacrifice over and over again, week after week, is to shout in the face of God that Jesus' once-for-all suffering and death on the cross wasn't enough. To say that we need to do penance to receive more grace is to shout in the face of God that Jesus' righteousness and his holiness and his glory and the radiance in which he exudes has not been imputed to us. To attribute, attribute redemption to our efforts in any way is to rob God of the glory that he deserves. At the end of the day, Roman Catholicism robs God of his glory because it undermines the solace of the Reformation that stripped God of his glory and profaned his name. But as the prophet Isaiah tells us, God will share his glory with no one. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God alone receives all glory, for he alone is the creator, and he alone is the source of salvation for everyone who believes. But you might be wondering, well, how do we glorify God? Well, the first thing to clarify is what glorify means. Now, to say John Piper is brilliant in speaking about the glory of God, and I've been greatly helped by reading and listening to him. He says this, the word glorify is not like the word beautify. Uh, when you want to beautify a room you, to make it more beautiful, uh, it, it means that the room wasn't beautiful, and you've been able to contribute to its beauty now. But when you glorify God, you don't actually make him more glorious. He's already glorious. He's already holy. You can't make him any more holy or glorious. His character is already perfect. You can't contribute in any way to his character or wisdom or knowledge. He's perfect. And so to glorify God doesn't mean to make God more glorious. Instead, it's to see God as glorious, to admire him as glorious, to celebrate him as glorious. And when we glorify God with our words and our behavior, we glorify God in everything we do. We reflect God's character, his holiness, his justice, his mercy. And when we do these things, we glorify God by pointing to his glory. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 tells us, so whether you eat or drink, something so mundane, something we do all the time, whether we eat or drink, well, whatever you do, our intention, our desire is to do it all for the glory of God. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And that's what the great composer Bach did. Uh, whenever he started composing music, he'd write JJ at the top of the, uh, the, the uh, page. And the JJ stands for Jesus, help me. That is, Jesus, help me show your glory through the music I write may bring you joy even as it brings joy to your people. You see, as he seeks to compose beautiful music, his desire is to seek Jesus' help and for him to be able to bring all glory to God. And so when he was satisfied with his work, he'd write the letters SDG at the bottom. And that stands for Soli Deo Gloria. He hoped that his music and when it was played, would bring people to God. And that's what we must do with our work, when we're at home, and as we gather as a church. You see, we glorify God by accepting one another as Christ accepts us. We glorify God by sexual purity. We glorify God by caring for others. We glorify God by praising God. We glorify God for, by praising God for his mercy. We glorify God by praising him when someone is converted. We glorify God by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, we glorify God by declaring who he is in all his glory. We glorify God by our behavior as it reflects who he is in all his glory. And so... In contrast, greed dishonors God and profanes his name because God's not greedy but generous. Rather, sacrificial generosity glorifies God for it reflects the character of God and brings praise to God. As John Piper puts it, when we glorify God, we see him as glorious. We love what we see, we help others see him and love him that way. About 120 years after the Reformation got going, around 120 divines or Christian scholars and ministers assembled at Westminster in London to put to paper the truths taught in Scripture alone. The purpose was to unite the Reformation movement in England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland, and even continental Europe in doctrine, worship, discipline, church government. After five years of meetings and discussions, the Westminster Confession of Faith was published. And the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The divines got it right, didn't they? The Westminster Confession of Faith has been adopted as a doctrinal statement of many denominations, including the Presbyterian Church. 
We Anglicans may not have, because we already had the 39 articles. But as J.I. Packer has said, it was drafted, be it said, mainly by Anglicans. In 2004, an Episcopal bishop of Virginia by the name of Peter James Lee said this, If you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. It's sad, it's a sad reality that the truth of the gospel has been and continues to be compromised again and again, that God's name is profane, his glory is stripped from him, because there are people who would rather lose the gospel than to lose their status. Unfortunately, this isn't uncommon. A few years ago, I heard a minister tell me that there are some people who would have to, uh, said to me, the Bible can change, that is, the teachings of God can change, but tradition must not. Friends, we're servants of Christ. We've been charged to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to us. We are Protestant Christians indebted to Luther and Calvin, Tyndale and Cranmer, Zwingli and Knox, and many others, who saw fresh in the 16th century that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So friends, will you side with me and the Reformers, not only to defend the faith, and the gospel that has been handed down to us, but to make it our life's ambition to bring all praise and glory and majesty to God alone. Amen.